Chapter Seventeen of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Seventeen. Galapagos Archipelago. The whole group volcanic. Numbers of craters. Leafless bushes colony at Charles Island, James Island, Salt Lake in craters, Natural History of the Group, Ornithology, Curious Finches, Reptiles, Great Tortoises, Habits of, Marine Lizard, Feeds on Seaweed, Terrestrial Lizard, Burrowing Habits, Herbivorous, Importance of Reptiles in the Archipelago, Fishes, shells, insects. Botany, American type of organization. Differences in the species or races on different islands. Tameness of the birds. Fear of man and acquired instinct. September 15th. This archipelago consists of ten principal islands, of which five exceed the others in size. They are situated under the equator, and between five and six hundred miles westward of the coast of America. They are all formed of volcanic rocks. A few fragments of granite, curiously glazed and altered by the heat, can hardly be considered as an exception. Some of the craters, surmounting the larger islands, are of an immense size, and they rise to a height of between three and four thousand feet. Their flanks are studded by innumerable smaller orifices. I scarcely hesitate to affirm that there must be, in the whole archipelago, at least two thousand craters. These consist either of lava or scory, or of finely stratified sandstone-like tuff. Most of the latter are beautifully symmetrical. They owe their origin to eruptions of volcanic mud without any lava. It is a remarkable circumstance that every one of the twenty-eight tuff craters which were examined had their southern sides either much lower than the other sides or quite broken down and removed. As all these craters apparently have been formed when standing in the sea and as the waves from the trade wind and the swell from the open Pacific here unite their forces on the southern coasts of all the island their singular uniformity in the broken state of the crates, composed of the soft and yielding tuff, is easily explained. Considering that these islands are placed directly under the equator, the climate is far from being excessively hot. This seems chiefly caused by the singly low temperature of the surrounding water, brought here by the great southern polar current. Excepting during one short season, very little rain falls, and even then it is irregular, but the clouds generally hang low. Hence, whilst the lower parts of the island are very sterile, the upper parts, at a height of a thousand feet and upwards, possess a damp climate and a tolerably luxuriant vegetation. This is especially the case on the windward sides of the island which first receive and condense the moisture from the atmosphere.
In the morning, the 17th, we landed on Chatham Island, which, like the others, rises with a tame and rounded outline, broken here and there by scattered hillocks, the remains of former craters. Nothing could be less inviting than the first appearance. A broken field of black basaltic lava, thrown into the most rugged waves, and crossed by great fissures, is everywhere covered by stunted, sunburnt brushwood, which shows little signs of life. The dry and parched surface, being heated by the noonday sun, gave to the air a close and sultry feeling, like that from a stove. We fancied even that the bushes smelt unpleasantly. Although I diligently tried to collect as many plants as possible, I succeeded in getting very few, and such wretched-looking little weeds would have better become an arctic than an equatorial flora. The brushwood appears, from a short distance, as leafless as our trees during winter, and it was some time before I discovered that not only almost every plant was now in full leaf, but that the greater number were in flower. The commonest bush is one of the Euphorbiaceae, an acacia and a great odd-looking cactus are the only trees which afford any shade. After the season of heavy rains, the islands are said to appear for a short time partially green. The volcanic island of Fernando Norona, placed in many respects under nearly similar conditions, is the only other country where I have seen a vegetation at all like this of the Galapagos Islands. The beagles sailed round Chatham Island, and anchored in several bays. One night I slept on shore on a part of the island, where black truncated cones were extraordinarily numerous. From one small eminence I counted sixty of them, all surmounted by craters more or less perfect. The greater number consisted merely of a ring of red scory, or slags, cemented together and their height above the plain of lava was not more than from fifty to a hundred feet. None had been very lately active. The entire surface of this part of the island seems to have been permeated, like a sieve, by the subterranean vapours. Here and there the lava, whilst soft, has been blown into great bubbles, and in other parts the tops of caverns similarly formed have fallen in, leaving circular pits with steep sides. From the regular form of the many craters, they gave to the country an artificial appearance, which vividly reminded me of those parts of Staffordshire, where the great iron foundries are most numerous. The day was glowing hot, and the scrambling over the rough surface and through the intricate thickets was very fatiguing. But I was well repaid by the strange cyclopean scene. As I was walking along I met two large tortoises, each of which must have weighed at least two hundred pounds. One was eating a piece of cactus, and as I approached it stared at me and slowly walked away. The other gave a deep hiss and drew in its head. These huge reptiles, surrounded by the black lava, 
the leafless shrubs, and large cacti, seemed to my fancy like some antediluvian animals. The few dull-coloured birds cared no more for me than they did for the great tortoises. The twenty-third. The beagle proceeded to Charles Island. This archipelago has long been frequented, first by the buccaneers, and latterly by whalers. But it is only within the last six years that a small colony has been established here. The inhabitants are between two and three hundred in number. They are nearly all people of colour, who have been banished for political times from the Republic of the Equator, of which Quito is the capital. The settlement is placed about four and a half miles inland, and at a height probably of a thousand feet. In the first part of the road we passed through leafless thickets, as in Chatham Island. Higher up the woods gradually became greener, and as soon as we crossed the ridge of the island, we were cooled by a fine southerly breeze, and our sight refreshed by a green and thriving vegetation. In this upper region, coarse grasses and ferns abound, but there are no tree ferns. I saw nowhere any member of the palm family, which is the more singular, as 360 miles northward, Cocos Island takes its name from the number of coconuts. The houses are irregularly scattered over a flat space of ground, which is cultivated with sweet potatoes and bananas. It will not easily be imagined how pleasant the sight of black mud was to us, after having been so long accustomed to the parched soil of Peru and northern Chile. The inhabitants, although complaining of poverty, obtain without much trouble the means of subsistence. In the woods there are many wild pigs and goats, but the staple article of animal food is supplied by the tortoises. Their numbers have of course been greatly reduced in this island, but the people yet count on two days' hunting, giving them food for the rest of the week. It is said that formerly single vessels have taken away as many as seven hundred, and that the ship's company of a frigate, some years since, brought down in one day two hundred tortoises to the beach. September 29th We doubled the southwest extremity of Albemarle Island, and the next day were nearly becalmed between it and Narborough Island. Both are covered with immense deluges of black naked lava which have flowed either over the rims of the great cauldrons, like pitch, over the rim of a pot in which it has been boiled, or have burst forth from smaller orifices on the flanks. In their descent they have spread over miles of the sea-coast. On both of these islands eruptions are known to have taken place, and in Albemarle we saw a small jet of smoke curling from the summit of one of the great craters. In the evening we anchored in Banks Cove, in Albemarle Island. The next morning I went out walking. To the south of the broken tuff crater, in which the beagle was anchored, there was another beautifully symmetrical one of an elliptical form. Its longer axis was a little less than a mile, and its depth about five hundred feet. At its bottom there was a shallow lake, 
in the middle of which a tiny crater formed an islet. The day was overpoweringly hot, and the lake looked clear and blue. I hurried down the cindery slope, and, choked with dust, eagerly tasted the water. But to my sorrow I found it salt as brine. The rocks on the coast abounded with great black lizards, between three and four feet long, and on the hills an ugly yellowish-brown species was equally common. We saw many of this latter kind, some clumsily running out of the way, and others shuffling into their burrows. I shall presently describe in more detail the habits of both these reptiles. The whole of the northern part of Albemarle Island is miserably sterile. October 8th. We arrived at James Island. This island, as well as Charles Island, were long since thus named after our kings of the Stuart line. Mr. Bino, myself, and our servants were left here for a week, with provisions and a tent, whilst the beagle went for water. We found here a party of Spaniards, who had been sent from Charles Island to dry fish and to salt tortoise meat. About six miles inland, and at the height of nearly two thousand feet, a hovel had been built in which two men lived, who were employed in catching tortoises, while the others were fishing on the coast. I paid this party two visits, and slept there one night. As in the other islands, the lower regions was covered by nearly leafless bushes, but the trees were here of a larger growth than elsewhere, several being two feet, and some even two feet nine inches in diameter. The upper region being kept damp by the clouds, supports a green and flourishing vegetation. So damp was the ground, that there were large beds of coarse cyperus, in which great numbers of a very small water-rail lived and bred. While staying in this upper region, we lived entirely upon tortoise-meat, the breastplate roasted, as the gauchos do, carne con curio, with the flesh on it, is very good, and the young tortoises make excellent soup, but otherwise the meat to my taste is indifferent. One day we accompanied a party of the Spaniards in their whale-boat to a salina, or a lake from which salt is procured. After landing we had a very rough walk, over a rugged field of recent lava, which has almost surrounded a tough crater, at the bottom of which the sea lake lies. The water is only three or four inches deep, and rests on a layer of beautifully crystallized white salt. The lake is quite circular, and is fringed with a border of bright green succulent plants. The almost precipitous walls of the crater are clothed with wood, so that the scene was altogether both picturesque and curious. A few years since, the sailors, belonging to a sealing vessel, murdered their captain in this quiet spot, and we saw his skull lying among the bushes. During the greater part of our stay of a week, the sky was cloudless, and if the trade wind failed for an hour, the heat became very oppressive. 
On two days the thermometer within the tent stood for some hours at ninety-three degrees, but in the open air, in the wind and sun, at only eighty-five degrees. The sand was extremely hot. The thermometer, placed in some of a brown colour, immediately rose to a hundred and thirty-seven degrees. And how much above that it would have risen, I do not know, for it was not graduated any higher. The black sand felt much hotter, so that even in thick boots it was quite disagreeable to walk over it. The natural history of these islands is immensely curious, and well deserves attention. Most of the organic productions are aboriginal creations, found nowhere else. There is even a difference between the inhabitants of the different islands. Yet all show a marked relationship with those of America, though separated from that continent by an open space of ocean between five hundred and six hundred miles in width. The archipelago is a little world within itself, or rather a satellite attached to America, whence it has derived a few stray colonists, and has received the general character of its indigenous productions. Considering the small size of the islands, we feel the more astonished at the number of their aboriginal beings, and at their confined range. Seeing every height crowned with its crater, and the boundaries of most of the lava streams still distinct, we are led to believe that, within a period geologically recent, the unbroken ocean was here spread out. Hence, both in space and time, we seem to be brought somewhere near to that great fact, that mystery of mysteries, the first appearance of new beings on this earth. Of terrestrial mammals, there is only one which must be considered as indigenous, Mas Galapagoenesis and this is confined, as far as I could ascertain, to Chatham Island, the most easterly island of the group. It belongs, as I am informed by Mr. Waterhouse, to a division of the family of mice characteristic of America. At James Island there is a rat sufficiently distinct from the common kind to have been named and described by Mr. Waterhouse but as it belongs to the old world division of the family, and as this island has been frequented by ships for the last hundred and fifty years, I can hardly doubt that this rat is merely a variety produced by the new and peculiar climate, food and soil to which it has been subjected. Although no one has a right to speculate without distinct facts, yet even with respect to the Chatham Island mouse, it should be borne in mind that it may possibly be an American species imported here. For I have seen, in a most unfrequented part of the pampas, a native mouse living in the roof of a newly built hovel, and therefore its transportation in a vessel is not improbable. Analogous facts have been observed by Dr. Richardson in North America. Of land birds I obtained twenty-six kinds, all peculiar to the group and found nowhere else with the exception of one lark-like finch from North America, Doliconix orzivorus, which ranges on that continent as far north as 54 degrees, and generally frequents marshes. 
The other twenty-five birds consist, firstly of a hawk, curiously intermediate in structure, between a buzzard and the American group of carrying-feeding polybori. And with these latter birds it agrees most closely in every habit and even tone of voice. Secondly, there are two owls, representing the short-eared and white barn owls of Europe. Thirdly, a wren, three tyrant flycatchers, two of them species of pyrocephalus. One or both of them would be ranked by some ornithologists as only varieties, and a dove, all analogous to, but distinct from, American species. Fourthly, a swallow, which, though differing from the progne propuria of both Americas, only in being rather duller-coloured, smaller and slender, is considered by Mr. Gould as specifically distinct. Fifthly, there are three species of mocking-thrush, a form highly characteristic of America. The remaining land-birds form a most singular group of finches, related to each other in the structure of their beaks, short tails, form of body and plumage. There are thirteen species, which Mr. Gould has divided into four subgroups. All these species are peculiar to this archipelago. And so is the whole group, with the exception of one species, of the subgroup Cactornis, lately brought from Bow Island in the low archipelago. Of Cactornis, the two species may be often seen climbing about the flowers of the great cactus trees. But all the other species of this group of finches, mingled together in flocks, feed on the dry and sterile ground of the lower districts. The males of all, or certainly of the greater number, are jet black, and the females, with perhaps one or two exceptions, are brown. The most curious fact is the perfect gradation in the size of the beaks in the different species of Geospiza, from one as large as that of a hawfinch to that of a chaffinch, and, if Mr. Gould is right in including his subgroup, Cythidia in the main group, even to that of a warbler. The largest beak in the genus of Geospiza is shown in figure 1, and the smallest in figure 3, but instead of there being only one intermediate species, with a beak of the size shown in figure 2, there are no less than six species with insensibly graduated beaks. The beak of the subgroup Cathedia is shown in figure 4, the beak of Cactornis is somewhat like that of a starling, and that of the fourth subgroup, Camarinacus, is slightly parrot-shaped. Seeing this gradation and diversity of structure in one small, intimately related group of birds, one might really fancy that from an original paucity of birds in this archipelago, one species had been taken and modified for different ends. In a like manner, it might be fancied that a bird, originally a buzzard, had been induced here to undertake the office of the carrion-feeding polybory of the American continent. Of waders and water-birds, I was able to get only eleven kinds, and of these only three, including a rail confined to the damp summits of the islands, 
are new species. Considering the wandering habits of the gulls, I was surprised to find that the species inhabiting these islands is peculiar, but allied to one from the southern parts of South America. The far greater peculiarity of the land birds, namely twenty-five out of twenty-six, being new species, or at least new races, compared with the waders and web-footed birds, is in accordance with the greater range which these latter orders have in all parts of the world. We shall hereafter see this law of aquatic forms, whether marine or fresh water, being less peculiar at any given point of the earth's surface than the terrestrial forms of the same classes, strikingly illustrated in the shells and in a lesser degree in the insects of this archipelago. Two of the waders are rather smaller than the same species brought from other places. The swallow is also smaller, though it is doubtful whether or not it is distinct from its analogue. The two owls, the two tyrant-catchers, pyrocephalus, and the dove, are also smaller than the analogous but distinct species, to which they are most nearly related. On the other hand, the gull is rather larger. The two owls, the swallow, all three species of mocking-thrush, the dove in its separate colours, though not in its whole plumage, the totanus and the gull, are likewise duskier coloured than their analogous species. And in the case of the mocking-thrush and the totanus, than any other species of the two genera. With the exception of a wren with a fine yellow breast, and of a tyrant flycatcher with a scarlet tuft and breast, none of the birds are brilliantly coloured, as might have been expected in the equatorial district. Hence it would appear probable that the same causes which here make the immigrants of some peculiar species smaller make most of the peculiar Galapagian species also smaller, as well as very generally more dusky-coloured. All the plants have a wretched, weedy appearance, and I did not see one beautiful flower. The insects, again, are small-sized and dull-coloured, and, as Mr. Waterhouse informs me, there is nothing in their general appearance which would have led him to imagine that they had come from under the equator. Open footnote. The progress of research has shown that some of these birds, which were then thought to be confined to the islands, occur on the American continent. The eminent ornithologist, Mr. Sklatzler, informs me that this is the case with the Strix punctatissima and pyrocephalus nanus, and probably with the Otus galapogoenesis and Zenida Galapogoenesis, so that the number of endemic birds is reduced to twenty-three, or probably to twenty-one. Mr. Sklatler thinks that one or two of these endemic forms should be ranked rather as varieties than species, which always seem to me probable. End of footnote. The birds, plants, and insects have a desert character and are not more brilliantly coloured than those from southern Patagonia. We may therefore conclude that the usual gaudy colouring of the intertropical productions is not related either to the heat or light of those zones, but to some other cause, 
perhaps to the conditions of existence being generally favourable to life. We will now turn to the order of reptiles, which gives the most striking character to the zoology of these islands. The species are not numerous, but the numbers of individuals of each species are extraordinarily great. There is one small lizard belonging to a South American genus, and two species, and probably more, of the Amplirhynchus, a genus confined to the Galapagos Islands. There is one snake which is numerous. It is identical, as I am informed by M. Burbron, with the Samophis temoniki from Chile. Open footnote. This is stated by Dr. Gunther. Zoological Society, January 24, 1859, to be a peculiar species, not known to inhabit any other country. Close footnote. Of sea turtle, I believe there are more than one species, and of tortoises there are, as we shall presently show, two or three species or races. Of toads and frogs there are none. I was surprised at this, considering how well suited for them the temperate and damp upper woods appear to be. It recalled to my mind the remark made by Bory St. Vincent, namely that none of this family are found on any of the volcanic islands in the great oceans. As far as I can ascertain from various works, this seems to hold good throughout the Pacific, and even in the large islands of the Sandwich Archipelago. Mauritius offers an apparent exception, where I saw the Rana Mascarienesis in abundance. This frog is said now to inhabit the Seychelles, Madagascar, and Bourbon. But, on the other hand, Dubois, in his voyage in 1669, states that there were no reptiles in Bourbon except tortoises. And the officer de Roy asserts that, before 1768, it had been attempted, without success, to introduce frogs into Mauritius, I presume for the purpose of eating. Hence it may be well doubted whether this frog is an aboriginal of these islands. The absence of the frog family in the oceanic islands is the more remarkable, when contrasted with the case of lizards, which swarm on most of the smallest islands. May this difference not be caused, by the great facility with which the eggs of lizards, protected by calcareous shells, might be transported through salt water, then could the slimy spawn of frogs. I will first describe the habits of the tortoise. Tetsudo nigra, formerly called indica, which has been so frequently alluded to. These animals are found, I believe, on all the islands of the archipelago. "'certainly on the greater number. "'They frequent in preference the high damp parts, "'but they likewise live in the lower and arid districts. "'I have already shown, from the numbers which have been caught in a single day, "'how very numerous they must be. "'Some grow to an immense size. "'Mr. Lawson, an Englishman, and vice-governor of the colony, "'told us that he had seen several so large that it required six or eight men to lift them from the ground, and that some had afforded as much as two hundred pounds of meat. The old males are the largest, the females rarely growing to so great a size. 
The male can be readily distinguished from the female by the greater length of its tail. The tortoises which live on those islands where there is no water, or in the lower and arid parts of the others, feed chiefly on the succulent cactus. Those which frequent the higher and damp regions eat the leaves of various trees, a kind of berry called guayvita, which is acid and austere and likewise a pale green filamentous lichen, usne placata, that hangs from the boughs of the trees. The tortoise is very fond of water, drinking large quantities and wallowing in the mud. The larger islands alone possesses springs, and these are always situated towards the central parts and at a considerable height. The tortoises, therefore, which frequent the lower districts, when thirsty are obliged to travel from a long distance. Hence broad and well-beaten paths branch off in every direction from the wells down to the sea coast, and the Spaniards, by following them up, first discovered the watering places. When I landed at Chatham Island, I could not imagine what animal travelled so methodically along well-chosen tracks. Near the springs it was a curious spectacle to behold many of these huge creatures one set eagerly travelling outwards, with outstretched necks, and another set returning, after having drunk their fill. When the tortoise arrives at the spring, quite regardless of any spectator, he buries his head in the water above his eyes, and greedily swallows great mouthfuls, at the rate of about ten in a minute. The inhabitants say each animal stays three or four days in the neighbourhood of the water, and then returns to the lower country. But they differed respecting the frequency of these visits. The animal probably regulates them according to the nature of the food on which it is lived. It is, however, certain that tortoises can subsist even on these islands where there is no other water than what falls during a few rainy days in the year. I believe it is well ascertained that the bladder of the frog acts as a reservoir for the moisture necessary to its existence. Such seems to be the case with the tortoise. For some time after a visit to the springs, their urinary bladders are distended with fluid, which is said gradually to decrease in volume and to become less pure. The inhabitants, when walking in the lower district, and overcome with thirst, often take advantage of these circumstances, and drink the contents of the bladder if full. In one I saw killed, the fluid was quite limpid, and had only a very slightly bitter taste. The inhabitants, however, always first drink the water in the pericardium, which is described as being best. The tortoises, when purposely moving towards any point, travel by night and day, and arrive at their journey's end much sooner than would be expected. The inhabitants, from observing marked individuals, consider that they travel a distance of about eight miles in two or three days. One large tortoise, which I watched, walked at a rate of sixty yards in ten minutes, that is, three hundred and sixty yards in the hour, or four miles in a day, allowing a little time for it to eat on the road. During the breeding season, when the male and female are together, the male utters a hoarse roar or bellowing, which, it is said, 
can be heard at the distance of more than a hundred yards. The female never uses her voice, and the male only at these times, so that when the people hear this noise, they know that the two are together. They were at this time, October, laying their eggs. The female, where the soil is sandy, deposits them together and covers them up with sand, but where the ground is rocky, she drops them indiscriminately in any hole. Mr. Benoe found seven placed in a fissure. The egg is white and spherical. One which I measured was seven inches and three-eighths in circumference, and therefore larger than a hen's egg. The young tortoises, as soon as they are hatched, fall a prey in great numbers to the carrion-feeding buzzards. The old ones seem generally to die from accidents, as from falling down precipices. At least several of the inhabitants told me that they never found one dead without some evident cause. The inhabitants believe that these animals are absolutely deaf. Certainly they do not overhear a person walking close behind them. I was always amused when overtaking one of these great monsters, as it was quietly pacing along, to see how suddenly, the instant I passed, it would draw in its head and legs, and uttering a deep hiss fall to the ground with a heavy sound, as if struck dead. I frequently got on their backs, and then giving a few raps on the hinder part of their shells, they would rise up and walk away, but I found it very difficult to keep my balance. The flesh of this animal is largely employed, both fresh and salted, and a beautifully clear oil is prepared from the fat. When a tortoise is caught, the man makes a slit in the skin near its tail, so as to see inside its body, whether the fat under the dorsal plate is thick. If it is not, the animal is liberated, and it is said to recover soon from this strange operation. In order to secure the tortoise, it is not sufficient to turn them like turtle, for they are often able to get on their legs again. 